It's that time of week, the time you've been waiting for. It's time for Goat Gab, a weekly podcast about all things in the dairy goat industry. Sit back and enjoy an hour or so with your hosts, Laura Warren Hughes and Cameron Jedlowski, as we talk about ideas and topics that matter to the dairy goat world. Welcome to another exciting episode of Goat Gab. We're so glad that you're here joining us. As always, I'm one of your co-hosts, Laura Warren Hughes, and I'm joined by two amazing co-hosts, Cameron and Catherine. So hi, guys. Hey, Laura. Hi, Laura. We're back for another episode this week and uh, excited to bring on uh, Dr. Taylor for this week's episode. Um, Dr. Taylor is my wife, or sometimes I forget to call her my fiance because my brain goes on autopilot sometimes. Uh, here, Dr. Taylor, do you want to do a formal introduction? Sure. I'm Dr. Catherine Taylor. Um, I am a Iowa State grad in the class of 2022 from their veterinary medicine program. I currently have a job in Whitewater, Wisconsin. Um, at the Whitewater Veterinary Hospital, where I do large animal medicine full-time. So cattle, sheep, goats, all the time. Um, and I enjoy my job very much. So, Dr. Taylor, I'm very sorry that I didn't use your professional title because, well, frankly, you know, I'm old and you're always going to be Catherine to me. But well, um, you can use that. That's okay. <laughs> <laughs> I just think it's so cool to have um, a vet that has such an extensive background with dairy goats as you do. And, and um, I'm sure that that serves you very well in your professional life as well as your personal life. Yeah, so... Um, we've had goats for 23 years now or so, and it helps too. mom was a vet. So I kind of grew up with goat medicine and then having goats of my own and then being a doctor myself. Now it's come quite in handy for a couple of those cases, but you know, you, as a vet, you always get those cases that are going to stump you. I mean, they just attract to us like magnets. Yeah. We had one of them today too. So yeah, that was, that was great. Are you going to talk about it later? No, we can talk about it now. I think we can just jump on to what's happening on the farm. Uh, yeah, that sounds um, good. So uh, we had a lovely day planned, had a lovely dinner last night with Catherine's family. Um, and then we got up this morning, and I, from the hours of 7 to 9 a.m., uh, things just got crazy. Uh, the one, the, the house dog ran away for a little bit. She was off exploring. She is back now, but we had to go find her. Um the other little dog that we have that's a puppy um, chooses violence oftentimes um, in the morning. So we had to deal with that as well. I'll just let you listeners figure out what that would be. Um, she peed in her cage. Um, and um, she, and then um, all of a sudden there was a goat aborting that we thought was aborting. So that was great and eventful. Um, I, was milking and after I got the dog back and Catherine was taking care of the goat and she kind of pulls the first fetus out. And what do you know that the kid is alive? Um, and I'm like, Oh, okay. What the heck is going on? So I run inside, grab some towels. Don't really know how many she has. Don't really like, don't even think about it. Just grab a bunch of towels and run back outside to kind of work them all off. She repositioned the second one, pulled that one out. Um, and what do you know, um, two little doe kids at 130 days. So 20 days early 
So um, that was quite the uh, excitement this morning. Wow. I've That's way beyond my limit that I've saved them. So I'm sure that you all had that that uh, gut clinching. Oh, no. Well, I, I was I was thinking, well, I mean, if they're they're buck kids, okay, no big deal. But but doe kids, I mean, that's a different story. <laughs> I mean, um, just just very very different than what we anticipated there. And um, I, I'll be honest with you, I generally don't have a loss of words for things, but uh, at, at this moment and this morning, I I was at a loss of words. I mean, they're pretty usually not viable when they're this early. So the fact that they've got lungs, they're eating really well, trying to stand. It's pretty impressive. They well, they do not have their eyes open though. So no. um, we were uh, they went to visit my parents, or as I can call them, grandma and grandpa, I guess, um, today with us as we had family dinner. And the one doe was like eye squinting, and Catherine was like eye squinting, and I sent a Snapchat of both of them with the same expression. <laughs> Aw, poor little babies. But they're eating and they're breathing. Yeah, they're eating, they're breathing. They, they're sitting in front of their space heater right now. Um, we got them started. We tube fed most of the day today. And then the, tonight we actually got them switched on to a pan. So they're on our normal protocol. Yeah. So wow. they will be living in the house for a little bit as well there. Um, and Catherine was like, well, what do we do with these two? And I was like, I don't even want to think about what they are in the equation of, of goats um, until they are somewhat viable. So um, I'm adding to our list preemies because I, I think that's a great place to start. Um, right. Kind of like what to expect. But um, before we jump onto that topic, Cameron, anything else going on on your farm? Are you Are you guys at a break in your kidding season now or – well, assuming there's no more excitement, um, we were going to have about a nice little two, two and a half week break. And then we had a group of like six or seven that was supposed to go um, there. So now I guess now it's only five that's supposed to be in that time period now. Um, but yeah, we're on a little break. We've um, sold some kids today. So we've got, and we sold the dry yearling. Um, we, you know, I talked a little bit about those exit ramps. March 1st is an exit ramp. Um, for me, when it comes to dry yearlings and figuring out if they're going to stay for the show circuit or they need to be moved down the road there for us. So sold the dry yearling as well. Um, got um, a buyer coming here in a couple weeks and scheduled out that to come pick up three goats. Um, taking two weathers tomorrow to go um, get um, to their new home um, on that. So, yeah, just, just um, moved a lot of goats out there and, and – then um, we we busted the milk machine out um, as well, so that's that's our excitement. It's always nice when you get that machine out and you hear that purr of the motor, and you're like, "Oh yes, this is great." Uh, it's it's quite refreshing. Let me say that. Yeah, and sometimes those little yearlings tend to do a little better with that and less kicking and so forth, or at least that's what I found. So we're both nodding our heads here in agreement on that. Um, Laura, what's, what's Laura, I guess, and Elizabeth's in the room too. What's happened at your guys' place? Well, she stepped out, but, um, I, our, we had, let's see, last Monday on our, on our three does that kitted, we ended up with, uh, four doe kids and two butt kids. So that's great. And they're all doing great. And they actually moved out to the garage yesterday. So, um, they're in there, um, 
big wide open spaces enjoying jumping around and having lots of room. And um, then Elizabeth Sonnen's season ended yesterday. Um, she only had two Sonnens. One, as you all know, kitted last December. So that was twin bucks. And, and this one um, is a, <coughs> excuse me, a doe that she really likes, but um, was uneven last year. Despite that, she was able to garner a, a champion leg. So that was kind of fun, but we were really hopeful. She freshened even this year with two great, big, huge buck kids. So um, I'm 100% bucks out of her sonnets. <laughs> uh, well, uh, exciting. And you got them in the garage as well there. So uh, no more um, room for your truck. <laughs> no, but you know, we've had hay in the garage anyway. So the trucks, the truck hasn't been in there anyway, but it's, it's all okay. And her sons, they're, uh, they're huge, big kids. They're bigger than the Alpine kids are already. So, um, and, uh, the mom is milking even out of both sides of her udder. So, you know, some, some positive things there. Yeah. It's always fun. I mean, we had a yearling that, or I guess she's now a two year old. That freshened with three times as much milk as she did with her last year. So that was our excitement too for this week. Yeah. Isn't that fun when you go out there and you see that and you're like, oh my gosh, this is huge. This is beautiful. I'm so excited. Can't wait. Oh, yeah. This was this was the goat that Cameron hates to look at. Blah, 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 blah. I was wrong. I, I will admit <laughs> that. Um, she, she still might be gone, but I mean, the utter just. She, she surprised, I think she surprised both of us, to be honest with you. Yeah, it's great. That's awesome. That's a good thing there. Um, but um, let's kind of move on. Uh, Laurel, anything happening in Edgar land here? Well, kind of the most, maybe the most exciting thing was they did announce the um, slate of judges for the 2023 Edgar National Show. So um, that's online on the Edgar Executive Committee page, and um, you'll probably see it on other pages because I've seen it repeated quite a bit. So um, I tell you to take a look at it. I don't really see a need to recap all of it. It's stuff that you can find online if that's something that interests you, but um, it's, it's nice to see some new faces. Actually, we've got two brand new judges this for this uh, year. So that's kind of fun. Yeah, absolutely. There it's, it's great to see new faces and always new blood to add to the national show pool on that. I, I, and the, the only other thing I'm going to say is I think good things are around the corner as far as, uh, maybe some concerns that people have had, um, with NG and its functionality. And we're just going to leave it at that. I don't want to jinx anything, but just, you know, good things do come to those who wait. So thank you everybody for your patience and, and just keep your eyes peeled for more good stuff around the corner. Yes. So Cameron wants to go on a rant because um, we can we can rant on the podcast because it's our podcast. And um, it, it's not really a rant, but maybe it's more of a buyer's beware. Understand, and I, I want to start this. We're, it's the time of the year we're starting to see a lot of ads pushing. Buck kids, doe kids. Um, I, I think it's important for every buyer to be an informed buyer. Um, make a connect and make connections with those breeders and understand that um, you know, it, it is a long kidding season. What I'm seeing on Facebook a lot right now is people jumping on the first goat they can find. Um, maybe it's an addition, maybe it's a buck kid. My biggest thing when I see that is, and my question to a lot of people is, is are they making the right decision? Are they really finding, you know, what's going to be best? Are they just jumping on what's out there? 
So when you're thinking about, you know, adding a new goat to your herd, maybe don't always react with the excitement of social media and, and seeing something now that you think you have to have it. Think about, is this the right decision to bring into the herd? Laura, does that make sense? Yeah. So it sounds to me like what you're saying is YOLO, you only live once does not work well with making purchases for your herd. Don't think that that you're never going to have that opportunity again or just because somebody's selling it is it's a great opportunity for you because it may not fit well for you at all, right? Yeah, absolutely there on that. So it, and I get it. I've bought goats on a whim and on on you know a hunch or or what, not done as much research as I probably should have and they didn't some did and some did not pan out. I'll own to that. So at some point, I will tell the Natasca story. Or maybe we'll have Dr. Ed on to tell the Natasca story on how that $1,800 Colorama cell kid did not pan out. Um, but, uh, um, you know, really try to make the most informed decision as possible. And when you're ready to make that decision, be prepared. Talk about how you're going to pay for the animal with that. Um, is it going to be cash check? Are you going to send a money order? How are you going to send that to PayPal? Whatever there. And then if you don't, can't physically get to that place, figure out your transport way ahead of time. Maybe talk to a transport person. Um, maybe you know figure out a local hauler as well. Maybe have some friends in the area that are going ar- around that specific area there. So figure out your transport because nothing makes a seller more happy, uh, excuse me, happier then when a buyer comes and says, yep, the check, I'm going to put the check in the mail tomorrow, and I already have a transport, let me get on his schedule. So that and that happened today, and I was like, oh, my God, i got to tell people. And I think that's really the best way to, to um, really impress your seller. I would say so, too. And especially, and be honest with your seller. Because sometimes things do come up and maybe you think you have transport and then, you know, you get a bad blizzard or there's bad weather that comes through. Just stay in touch. Don't leave that seller to think, oh, my gosh, are they ever going to get this goat? You know, are they ever going to pick up this kid? Um, Or maybe they're having second thoughts about this sale and it's not going to go through. Just keep in communication. And and I agree 2000% with what you said. If you can have everything all lined up when you contact the seller and say, yep, I'm ready to do this. That goes a long ways. It means I want to work with you again, too. That's my big thing is I I love organized buyers. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, if if you're brand new to that selling game, an organized seller is important, too. You know, don't, don't. Surprise your buyer with hidden fees. Oh yeah, um, you know I've got a vet a, a vet certificate that I have to throw on there. And oh, did I tell you you're going to have to pay my mileage to the airport or whatever? Try to make it as easy for your for your buyers too. Yeah, health health certs very important. If your seller requires that or your transport requires that, you you have you as the buyer will have to pay for that. So don't be surprised by that if there's a a crate fee or, or something like that. Or, you know, maybe you have to factor in people's time of shipping animals because good golly, that is not a, a, a uh, easy process sometimes. No, especially if an airport's involved, you know, not yeah. only do you have that cost of the plane ticket and air transport for kids is great if you can get it to work out, but it's a lot of work for the seller too. 
oh my to get God. that kid to the airport and, and, you know, get all that. So there's just, there's a lot to it. So be a good buyer and be a good seller. Yep. Absolutely. On that front there. Um, Dr. Catherine, Dr. Taylor, are you ready for the uh, main topic? Sure. Go for it. All right. We stopped last time talking about raising kids um, because we realized that there there's another side to raising kids that hopefully you're not ever going to need any of this information, but I bet at some point you probably will. And that's what you do when certain challenges arise um, that are typically part of kid rearing for most everybody. Um, and I want to touch on what we started to talk about earlier, and that's those premature babies, what you do when something comes too early. So, uh, Dr. Taylor, how early is too early? Um, usually anything earlier than 15 days. I mean, even that's kind of pushing it. So, like, if they're two weeks early, that's they're not viable at that point. Um, during that last week, we start seeing well, those last two weeks, we see hair growth. Um, we see long maturation and development and skelet, like final skeletal growth. Um, so it's before that, it's, it's pretty, pretty rare that they survive or make it. And you want to make extra sure, I would guess, that if you're inducing that you're not the one who's causing the prematurity problem, because I think anybody that's induced probably has done that once or twice. And it's pretty miserable when you realize, oh my gosh, I was wrong on dates or somehow I missed a breeding and these kids are not going to make it. Yep. So late term, um, I guess we'll call them late term abortions, like those last couple weeks before um, they actually have their due date. And there's not a whole lot of causes in sheep and goats that cause abortions at that point in time. Um, a lot of them are induced by humans. Like you said, someone just induced at the wrong point in time. Um, another option kind of in our case, um, if they get stressed either with um, enterotoxemia or pregnancy toxemia, um, the, the body releases those um, steroids that causes the, the fetuses to kind of uh, get stressed, which induces parturition. So um, with that, I mean, there's not, like I said, there's not a whole lot of causes that will make them abort that would cause problems across the whole herd. I see. Not so, good. Talking about those premature goats here, at what point can the goat kind of thermoregulate? You know, we have our heat lamps and we have, you know, nice warm bedding for them when they're when they're born, and that's obviously the normal goats. However, for these preemies, I mean, especially the ones in our case here, is is um, you know, at what point can these goats really help thermoregulate themselves? Um I'm not a whole, I mean, this is our first set of premature babies that were actually alive. So, um, this is, it's a whole new world for us, but, um, usually after about five days or so, they should be able, they should be eating and growing and getting enough of that body fat with on within their body. So the brown fat that they can burn, um, and use and thermoregulate themselves when they're less premature, there's just no extra body fat that they can use as like a store to keep their body warm. So they rely on external heat factors. I wish I could give them some of my body fat in order to keep them warm. Well, and I, I would assume that uh, premature animals, premature goat kids are just like human kids. When they don't have that extra fat, they're just burning up so much of their own energy trying to shiver or to keep warm or whatever that they 
they're having it, they're using all their energy for that. So there's no energy left over for growing or, you know, other, other things that they need that energy for. Is that a safe thing to say? Yeah. So they'll burn all the energy trying to keep warm that they can't, basically they go neurologic because their brain can't function without glucose. And that's why we see those acute deaths most of the time with those babies that are chilled because their body tries to shunt it all to vital organs and then it can't keep up with getting too cold. Poor babies. Yeah. Um, I, I guess if you have a premature kid, what's kind of the first thing if they come out alive? I mean, heat yeah. lamp. So, I mean, you yeah. can even do this in pregnancy toxemia. Like if you need to induce your dough early in order to save the dough and you kind of want to give those kids a chance. Um, using um, corticosteroids like dexamethasone um, before the kids are born on the dough helps mature those lungs in, in the when they're in when they're in utero um when they're born like these guys since i didn't know that they were coming they got dexamethasone afterwards just to kind of help take that um, inflammation out of their lungs and kind of get their lungs going Um, you can also use epinephrine a little bit um you don't want to use too much epinephrine because it'll also cause their heart rate to increase way too much um but that helps kind of open those airways and allow them to breathe. Um, some clinics will use Dopram. Um, Dopram has been shown in dogs and cats, especially those kind of neonates to help with stimulate breathing. Um, in ruminants, there's studies that show it's not as effective. Um, so I've, in school, they taught us it's not as much of a go-to drug anymore. Um, so they mostly use epi and oxygen just to get those kids breathing and going. And, and that was an interesting conversation Catherine and I had today was oxygen. And, and, and I was like, well, I, I guess, yeah, that's an interesting thing to add to your kid and kit. However, I guess, how do you get it? And, and you don't know when you need it as well there. And you don't ever plan for a, a premature kidding as well. Yeah. I mean, some of our bigger operations, I've got a club lamp producer. They get like a liter um, O2 tank from like their air gas or wherever they get their liquid nitrogen from. Um, and they use that and they've got a, a ho like a line and then they've got a face mask that they just clean and reuse every year. And they've saved actually a number of lambs that just get stressed, um, in the birthing process just by giving them that high flow O2, um, getting off the tank. Very interesting. So these are all things, of course, that you want to work in conjunction with your vet to get access to, right? Because epinephrine is, is probably not something that you can just order on your own, right? Right. Um, so you do need a script for epinephrine. Um, whether your clinic allows you to have single doses or a bottle is kind of up to your client-patient relationship. Um, we usually use it in like a, like some of our cases where like they're pretty skilled. Um, and know how to either calve or kid or lamb, um, we feel comfortable dispensing a bottle of epinephrine. Um, they use it for a, a different number of things, not only prematures, but when they have dystocias and things like that, epinephrine can come in handy. Um, it's also good to kind of have on hand for some of our, our show guys. They like to take epi with them to shows in case their cows have allergic reactions to bedding and stuff like that when they have these high dollar animals that are at expo and stuff. And of course, that's also a good drug to have on hand if you have an animal that has a penicillin allergy, right? Right. Yep. Yeah. So like if they have an allergic reaction, epinephrine is kind of the go-to 
Um, it's going to give them the most instant release um, of antihistamine versus if we used like a dexamethasone or a banamine. Got it. Um, so then after you get them through like, you know, the first several hours, you've got them breathing, you think that they're going to make it then. Um, do they need, obviously they need colostrum and there's a good chance you're going to have to tube it to them, right? Yep. So these girls, um, they had decent suckle reflexes, um, but they weren't that strong. So they've had multiple tube feedings every two hours. You don't want to give them too much colostrum where you stretch out that GI tract. Um, you want to give them just enough to give enough energy. So about two ounces every two hours is what um, we've been doing. And then this evening, so they're about they're about 12 hours old now, um, we were able to kind of let them free choice eat um, instead of tube feeding. And they ate about two ounces on their own. So, What kind of things do you need to watch for those preemies then as they continue to take in more and start developing a little bit? Are they at greater risk for pneumonia or um, other issues as they, as they get older? Yep. So that's kind of why we were happy. I was happy with their suckle reflex at this point in time. That's why we let them feed on their own. Um, but they are at greater risk for aspiration pneumonia or kind of choking on that um, milk as they are sucking on it, just because there's a lot of mucus um, as the surfactant kind of changes over in their lungs. Um, so the alveoli can breathe better. So there's a lot of mucus within their trachea coming up into their mouth. And then that gets real sticky with the milk. So we've been using our snot sucker throughout the day to kind of get their mouth and mouth cleared out. So they're not choking on um, like the mucus and stuff that's in their mouth. And for those that don't have a snot sucker, go to Walmart. It was $3. It, and I literally bought it today. So it's a, it's a cheap investment to have. Yeah, I like ours. And then you can reuse them, just wash them out. Turn them upside down to dry. They don't get gross. Yeah. 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 So as we continue on this premature path here, you know, everything's good and everything's hunky-dory. I guess what's the what's your thought? I, I know it's a thought rather than a clinical thing here on moving them and transitioning them to the, the full-time herd as, as well there. So the, the actual ba- the babies outside. So um, Yeah. So, I mean, there's – it's kind of uh, – it's kind of a touch and go kind of thing within the first week of their life. Um, if you can get them past the first 24 hours, you're doing pretty good. But there's other cases where they look like they're doing great. And then all of a sudden they downward spiral because they've got aspiration pneumonia or their lungs just decide that they can't keep up with um, getting enough oxygen throughout their blood as they're growing. Um, so, I mean, even though they look like they're great and going really good after about a week, you still got, you're still not quite out of the woods. Um, but once they start reaching that normal-ish kid size, like these guys are about three pounds. So once they get back up to about seven, eight pounds, you, you're usually fairly out of the woods. Um, and then at that point in time, they're probably at least two weeks old, if not older. Um, and it's just kind of just testing them, seeing how they hold their body temp um, when you take away a heat source, if they can handle that, how they handle more food, um, if you're not, if you're regulating how much they're eating and so forth. Bless their little heart. So our stakeholders are going to be interested, I'm sure, in hearing how these guys, how these little girls are continuing to do. Yeah, I'm sure, I guess we'll have to update the stakeholders on the old Facebook. Um, 
<laughs> with pictures. With pictures. The little, the little Survivor Girls. So yes, yes. The uh, the tribe will not speak on the will not be the, the tribe. They were their uh, little torch will not be extinguished yet. Just yeah, yet. that's right. That's right. Um, right. So besides talking about problems that we have on our farm, talking about something that my dad and I fought a lot, and I feel like everybody kind of fights it as well here is coccidiosis. Let's kind of unpack coccidiosis because to me this is the number one problem with kid rearing, and I think it's all. And Laura, you fight this too, right? Oh gosh, every year, every year, and always have. And and as much as you want to think, oh, this year is going to be different, you know, I think in the Midwest it's especially a challenge because we have humidity and lots of parasite loads and mud and um, sometimes endless days of wet days where the kids are just stuck inside or stuck in more mud than when you want them to be. And it's just, it's just miserable. So uh, yeah, coccidia is always a challenge, I think. But, but for Laura's fact, it is, it is wonderful to live in the Midwest. It's miserable during the coccidiosis time there. (laughs) Well, I mean, yes, I do like the Midwest, but the parasites in, in the coccidia are just, it is just a real challenge. It makes it makes me not want to have any kids born after April because it seems like that's when I really start to struggle with it. And especially as those kids make that transition from being on milk to weaning, it seems like that it rears its ugly head most of the time at that point. Is that typical, Dr. Taylor, for most people? Um, yeah. So it's basically that stress of weaning that causes a lot of the spikes in coccidia. Um, you're always going to have kind of a low level of coccidia within your herd because it's environmental. Um, it's whether or not it rears its ugly head and causes problems. Um, so kind of environment and management are your, and management of keeping that dry environment are kind of important when it comes to coccidia management. That's your main, I guess, like your main keepsake when it comes to, um, battling coccidia um but knowing the signs of that come with coccidia is pretty important so like not only are they going to have diarrhea but before they have diarrhea most of those kids are going to have some like a dry kind of off-colored coat um they're not going to want to eat as well um and so then they'll later on develop that diarrhea um which is what you're seeing when most people are like oh no we have coccidia yeah, that's that's generally when, when my dad and I would find it, and we'd be like, "Well, it's time for a coccidia treatment." There, um, and talking about those treatments, I guess there are lots of different them. Some of them over the counter, some of them veterinary prescription. Correct. Yes. So, um, I, I guess kind of, can you kind of walk through some of those, both of the OTC and the script um, ones? Yeah. So, um, kind of one of the things that most people are probably not familiar with that they have, but it's a good key to use would be a lot of those kid starters and growers have um, like a coccidia stat in them, either decoquinate or rumensin. Um, Those are just coccidia stats. So they kind of keep the number of coccidia at bay. It doesn't necessarily get rid of them, but it it keeps them from overpowering in those sheep and goats. So um, keeping our kids on like a kid grower um, or a starter that's a really good way, especially when they're about two, three weeks. Um, you can offer start offering them that kid starter and a creep version um, where they just kind of pick it as they want. And as they get older, 
Um, just before weaning, they'll have, be on a good amount of grain where you can get the appropriate levels of that coccidiostat to be really effective in your transition period between um, being on milk and weaning when coccidia likes to rear its ugly head. So um, I'm guessing if you can if you can meet that goal of having them eating real well at the time that you're cutting down on their amount of milk, uh, there that just really limits the stress then too. So you don't get that big bloom of coccidia. Yep. Yep. Cool. So your other options you can use um, over the counter, um, not prescription, would be amprolium, or also known as Corid. Uh, you can find that in a number of farm supply stores. Um, its sister would be sulfadimethoxine. Um, those are both really good products when it comes for um, treatment of coccidia. It's just one thing you have to be careful with those two drugs to not overdose those animals. Um, just because sulfa can cause them to have polio um, and have neurologic problems if you overdose them. So talking about those there, let's talk about the delivery delivery method of those. Um, obviously there's, and I, I've seen it, and I've done it multiple different ways. I've seen it mixed with water. I've seen it mixed with milk. I've seen it just given straight there. What's kind of the optimal delivery route? And I mean, it, it's different for everybody. And Laura, you probably have seen it done differently as well. Um, I'm not a big fan of, of Corid. Um, frankly, I guess I'm lazy. I hate drenching kids with it. I don't feel like that they get a consistent enough amount of it if I just add it to their bucket of water. And usually it's at the time that I'm weaning them. So I don't like to give it milk because again, you know, we feed in a lamb bar and I don't feel like I can consistently give it, but I've gotten a mouthful of Corid too many times to know why the goats hate it and fight it so much. It is the most bitter, horrible tasting stuff I've ever had in my mouth. So I'm not a huge fan of it. I've used it before and you know, it is something I keep in my arsenal, but it is, I, I don't like using it. That's just oh, me yeah. though. It smells like paint thinner. Um, well, I mean, that's the difference where you see some farms like Corid versus Sulfa. It kind of depends what their vet wants to use too, but um, a little bit of different dosing um, rates and time periods with those two. Um, the Corid um, is kind of your most common. Most people mix it with water. Like you said, you don't know if the kids are getting the proper amount that's going to be effective to treat the coccidia. So always individual dosing those kids, whether you want to give them straight Corid or mix it with water so it doesn't have as bad of a taste. Um, but then you're doing a larger dose when it comes to um, how much liquid you're putting in their mouth. That's the difference um, there. Gotcha. Well, I, I will tell you that we have done, we have tried the milk. And that just makes the milk taste so bad to my prima donnas. Um, so they they don't even eat it. So we've gone to the individual drenching um, amount there. Uh, and that seemed to work okay. Um, obviously, we've had other problems that have not been related to our, our, our core drenching problems. But, um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's how we've always taken the approach here. Uh, by we, I mean me and my dad, me and my wife still have yet to talk about kind of our pachycidiosis prevention plan. Um, it will probably not be discussed on the podcast because we will probably yell at each other for differences of opinion. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's different, theories. there's different theories when it comes to treatment of coccidia. 
Um, some people like it every three weeks. Some people like it just as needed. Um, and that's where Cameron and I kind of differ in our opinions. Um, I, I'm more of a don't treat unless you're having problems kind of person, mostly because I get the goats going really good on um, with an ionophore in their feed with the rumensin. So I don't have as much of a problem with coccidia. I usually do treat them at weaning. Um, just at that point in time, everyone's clear and clean and ready to go going forward. Yeah, and, and on, on the flip side of that coin, we've never used a, a rumensin-like product before in our kid feed as well there. So um, we've been pretty aggressive with the cord treatment every three weeks or whenever we said, hey, well, it feels like it's about time for a cord treatment. <laughs> um, so uh, that's kind of been our our way to do it. And obviously we have differences of opinions, but both have worked out well and both of our, fa- both of our favorites. So, yeah. So, Dr. Taylor, I see a lot of people online who are really gaga over a product called Calf Pro, and they put it in their kids' milk and use that as a coccidiostat prevention program. Do you have any experience or any thoughts about this? Uh, I haven't had any experience with it. Um, so Calf Pro basically is, uh, it's got lasalicid in it, which is another ionophore. Um, so it's basically the same thing as I do is with getting them on a creep feed. It's just putting that ionophore in their milk to help with the, cox- with the control of coccidia. And my question for those listeners that do use Calf Pro, um, does it taste as bad as Corid? That is my question. Well, it, it's different than Corid, Cameron. It's it's a prevention, not a treatment. Oh, okay. Probably not. Yes, and, and I have used Calf Pro before. Um, it's it's usually you get it in a pump, and um, it doesn't take very much, and you can mix it into like we mix it into our lamb bar. Um, it doesn't mix very well with milk. You kind of, I, I kind of mix it up with some water first, and then uh, dumped it in the milk, and it, it seemed to work okay. Um, I, I had good luck with it. I felt like that it did a good job. Um, we've kind of gone to using another product called Probac C, and it's a powder, and um, it is um, a similar product, but it's just in a powder, and it has some. Um, Oh, probiotics with it too. And it smells really yummy. Doesn't taste very good, but the kids don't seem to mind the taste of it. It just smells really good. So um, that's, you know, that's a little bit of, of another, another idea. It also, it has the same ingredient that Calf Pro has in it. So yep. Bovatech is the, the main ingredient with it. Gotcha there. So um I guess final thoughts kind of on coccidiosis as a whole. I mean, this is kind of the number one killer as well, Kier. If, if you're going to have let the listeners, Dr. Taylor, know one thing about coccidiosis, what's it going to be? Um, coccidiosis is the number one cause of unthrifty, ungrowthy goats. Um, so it's really important to be ahead of it because once they are overloaded with coccidia, it's kind of hard to get them back on that plane of growth that you were getting really good when they were younger, um, especially going into weaning and early on in their life. So, I mean, it is doable. You can get them back, but um, being on top of your coccidia control and management treatment protocol is pretty important. Yeah. I, I always wonder when I see goats that you know, once you learn what coccidia looks like, you can kind of almost just see it staring at you, you know, um, can you pull them out of it? So it's good to know that you can, but it takes a lot of work and, and 
man, you're behind that eight ball for a long time, it seems like. Yeah, I agree I'm behind the eight ball because those kids just don't – I mean, it takes weeks for them to bounce back from that. Yeah. All right, so kind of going into – we talked about kind of number one, but I think there are some smaller ones as well to just kind of talk about a little bit here. And I want to just kind of kind of start with, I guess, the one that we kind of experienced recently, not in our kids' side of the house, but in our – have you seen it here? I want to talk a little bit about enrotoxemia. Uh, we don't necessarily see it a lot, but I guess what – Dr. Taylor, what, first off, what is enrotoxemia? Because I didn't know this big word until about three years ago. And uh, number two, um, I, I guess, how does it happen? Yeah, so enterotoxemia is um, basically the term we use for when clostridium perfringens overgrowth within the GI tract and kind of releases its toxin. So it causes the enteric, the, um, enteric tract or the GI tract to um, have a bunch of toxins that get in the bloodstream. And then they have profuse, watery, bloody diarrhea. Um, and then they basically kind of get to- toxic shock syndrome from it, from overgrowth. Um, so what so happens? It poisons, it poisons them. Yep. So um, basically what happens is they have an assault on their GI tract, whether they um, eat too much grain or there's a change in their feeding program where they get too much of a rich ingredient the one day and then not enough the next day. And they, um, the, the GI flora gets kind of, kind of out of whack and then when you put them on that high concentrate diet where there's lots of corn or lots of carbohydrates in there um the clostridium overgrows and kind of has a has a heyday as I like to say um and then those overgrowth kind of releases toxins as they break down within the GI tract so, so that's why when you have like a major change in feedstuffs with your goat like either they they break into your feed room or um, you make a really rapid change into um, hay that is like very lush compared to something you were maybe feeding before. That's why the, that's when you see enterotoxemia that rears its ugly head. Yep. It's, it's called the silent. It's called the, um, what is it? It's, it kills your best animals for a reason. And it's usually those, like those good doers that are eating a lot um, that get the, basically get enterotoxemia because they overeat at one point in time. Um, especially we see it a lot in kids when they, those like those heavy growthy kids that are eating really good. And then if you switch feed or if you feed too much one day um, and they eat a lot of it, and then that's when they have problems and they, the clostridium will overgrow. And there's natural clostridium already in the the GI tract, correct? Yep. So there's always going to be bacteria within your GI tract. Clostridium is one of them that'll be there, and it's a normal GI flora, um, but it overgrows when you have too much starch in the in the in the GI tract. So this is one of those diseases, though, that you can um, really do a lot of halting to through vaccines, correct? Correct. So CD&T, so that's got clostridium perfringens type C and D, and then your tetanus um, are within that toxoid. Um, so using vaccines, both in the dam and then in the kids, especially at weaning with those kids, um, that's kind of the optimal time to do their CD&T. Some people like to do their boosters earlier when they're four weeks and then six and eight weeks um, just to get three boosters on board. 
Um, some other people, just depending on your program, what you want to do and how many vaccines you want to do. Sometimes they just do them at um, eight weeks and then 10, at 10 weeks or 12 after that when they're that old. Um, but using that um, CD&T in the dams like four to six weeks before they kid, before they kid um, really gives those kids a boost in their natural immunity um, from mom, especially for those first four to six weeks of their life. So um, several years ago, we quit vaccinating with CD&T. And um, I'm going to tell you, we lost... 16 goats that year from enterotoxemia before we figured out what was going on. So I guess that leads me to my next question, Dr. Taylor, if you have an animal that comes down to it, can you save them? And what kind of things should you try? Yep. So catching enterotoxemia early is important because if it's later in the game, um, the toxins is usually what kills them more than anything. Um, so, um, if you kind of notice that goat off or if they've had an assault where you've changed feed or they got out and they went into a bag of feed, it doesn't hurt to booster their CD&T that day and kind of just give them either a penicillin or probiotic, um, inject like probiotics to kind of get them through to keep the good bacteria up and then the clostridium at bay, um, if you do have a doe that's got the really bad, profuse, watery diarrhea, um, my go-tos with them, I have CD&T antitoxin. So it's not your regular toxoid that you vaccinate with yearly. It's antitoxin. So that binds with the toxins that Clostridium produces. Um, and I give that both orally and sub-Q. Um, I found giving it orally uh, helps bind with the toxins a little quicker than just giving the sub-Q, like the label says, so it is extra label, so please consult with your veterinarian prior to doing so. Um, and then uh, get starting them on penicillin, high doses there, and then thiamine. So thiamine is really important because the clostridium is going to kill a lot of those microbes within the rumen because they're going to be off feed. And that's when we start seeing those goats that later on, after you get them through the initial insult, uh, where they start seeing, um, where you get over the diarrhea, um, you can have signs of polio where they get neurologic or they kind of want to stargaze. Um, so the thiamine really helps boost their appetite and keep those good microbes going within the rumen so they can digest feed properly and have that vitamin B within their system. Okay. So one thing I do want to say about the antitoxin, at least I've, I've heard this and I want to put it out in the world. It is very, very, very hard to get at some times, in some places, and not all veterinarians carry it as well there. So, um, again, I encourage you to have the conversation with your veterinarian and see if you can get some ordered. I, I think it's been on back order since, like, I want to say NOM, but, like, since Vietnam, but but it's been it's been a while since they've actually had it fully stocked on the shelves. Yeah, it's been on manufacturer back order, I think, since last May. Um, we just got notifications that it was going to ship out from our distributor to one of our uh, dairy clients this next week. So it is coming back. Um, it's going to be in limited supplies. I mean, we I usually have a 250 ml bottle in the fridge. It usually it doesn't go bad um, that quickly. So when I need it, I have it. Um, and especially since you're using it on goats, you're going to use 20 mils at a time 
on your big does and 10 mils at a time on your kids. So you can go through it fairly quickly. Um, just know that it, it doesn't, it's an antitoxin. So it only lasts seven. It's in their system a max of seven days. So it's not something you're going to vaccinate with your tetanus, your uh, CDT uh, is going to last for their a year, basically. Um, in some cases you have, um, with a higher clostridium, um, pressure like down in the south especially where it's wet um, and they see a lot of different feed changes down there some of the clients um, will um, do twice a year vaccinations um, we've previously done vaccines uh, two to three times a year just because we were having clostridial problems on my parents farm so it just kind of depends on your location um, how you want to treat it with prevention on the vaccine side and then treatment when you actually have a enterotoxemia case. And one thing I will say about CD&T vaccination, and this is just from my limited experience as well here, is that I, I think it does, uh, when we started doing CD&T, and we just kind of definitely just changed our mindset recently about CD&T probably within the last six months on my dad's operation. Um, you know, we've, we've started actually giving CD&T to big does and kind of going through it instead of once a year, two times a year as well there. So I will tell you that we've seen a lot, he's seen a lot of problems with that. Um, and he's definitely trending more towards, a, a, a using more CD&T and to me as well, why wouldn't you use it? I mean, we just picked up a bottle at our local farm store. It was like 50 bucks for 250 mLs. It is a cheap, and this is my opinion, a cheap protection and you're getting a lot more protection for that, you know, one, less than $1, like 20 cents per ml um, on that uh, for for your farm. Yeah, I would agree with that too. Yeah, and I mean, with kids, it's kind of, you won't see the signs as much as you see with your big does um, when it comes to enterotoxemia. With those, there are kids that are off feed, have maybe some diarrhea. We've had cases of enterotoxemia both our farm, Cameron's parents' farm, and other friends, um, where those kids just go off feed, they kind of, they're kind of bellyachy, and then all of a sudden they're dead 12 hours later. So those are usually enterotoxemia cases as well. So sometimes just depending on what your situation is, it doesn't hurt. It's a cheap thing to use if you have um, the CD&T vaccines or even the antitoxin um, when you have cases like that. So go ahead, Laura. I was going to say, so is it safe to say that a cousin to enterotoxemia is floppy kid? Um, so floppy kid kind of depends. It's kind of a colloquial type thing. So floppy kid could either be selenium deficiency or it could be caused by enterotoxemia or it could be caused by just a, a hypoglycemia. So it really depends on where it's not really a medical term when we say floppy kid. Yeah, Laura. I thought you had one. You said something about it last year, and I was like, "What's that?" Like, I, I, I can't, like I've heard it, and I've heard people talk about it, but I've like never seen it before. And I think it's because it manifests usually in a different form or some type of, or like having a colloquialism there. Yeah. So I mean, most people when they're referring to floppy kid syndrome are probably they're probably talking about white muscle disease, which is um, a thiamine and selenium deficiency. Well, and maybe that's what this was. It was the, we had never seen anything like it. It was a kid who was born who got her colostrum. She was just fine. 
um, was maybe a little over a day. And all of a sudden I went out and she was flat on her side and truly floppy, like mm-hmm. couldn't hold her head up, couldn't do anything. Um, and we saved her. Um, thanks to you, Dr. Taylor gave us some advice on some things to try. Um, gave her a lot of supportive care. Uh, she seemed to pull out of it. She seemed to have a relapse a couple of days later and then she was fine. But I'm just going to say this at about two months of age, when she had been going great guns and was growing well and everything, we walked out to the pen and found her dead, just gone. So, you know, was it floppy kid? Did she have some type of a, um, genetic issue that we didn't know about. I, you know, it's really hard. It's, it's hard to say, but um, I, I feel like on the internet you um, hear about a uh, floppy kid and things like that, you know? No, I was just trying to figure out um, kind of the differences with like white muscle disease versus enterotoxemia in floppy kids. All right, so kind of moving past Floppy Kid a little bit here, I do want to you've, – you've talked about this a lot, and you keep mentioning it, and you were like, Cameron, put this on the podcast. I want to talk about this. Um, polio. Uh, you, you've kind of mentioned it, and I would say your first favorite drug it, of, of choice when it comes to goat problems is dexamethasone. Your second one is thymine. Um, so talk a little bit about polio, what's kind of happening there with the goat – what are kind of the signs? Cause we don't, I don't really think about polio much um, except if it's, you know, one of our former great presidents. Um, so polio. Um, so it's called polio encephalomyelitia. It's basically a thiamine deficiency. So it's um, something's causing either the GI tract to lose thiamine or um, not able to absorb thiamine that causes this deficiency. And you start seeing those neurologic signs because it um, basically affects the brain. Um, there's not enough B, vitamin B12 um, moving around within the – or I guess it's vitamin B1, sorry um, – within the system for neurologic um, performance. So um, with polio, you'll kind of see those kids or even the does that are stargazing. So they've got their head over their back um, looking straight up at the sky. You might see a nystagmus where their eye is ticking from left to right or right to left um, and just keeps going back and forth. But thiamine, um, like I said, it's um, it's a it's a vitamin. Um, and usually when there's an assault to the GI tract or like I said, so they can't get the thiamine in, um, it really needs to be supplemented. Um, and before you see those neurologic signs, um, you usually with injections over a couple days time period. I haven't ever had a goat well, that I know of with polio, but um, thiamine is something that I do always keep on hand just in case. Would you advise, would you advise that, that, you know, work with your vet, but do have something like that on hand? Yeah. So I usually give thiamine, um, usually when we have um, diarrhea cases and some, some like the enterotoxemia cases, especially um, just because they're not able to absorb that vitamin B at that point in time. And since it's so necessary for neurologic function, um, I really like to have that on hand, um, especially in your cases of like rumen acidosis, um, which is common 
with enterotoxemia because you've got too much starch and it throws off the pH in the rumen. You'll see a lot of those neurologic signs associated with um, polio. So having thiamine on hand or, or working with your vet to get some, um, everyone's a little different on how they want to treat it. So it's, it's really what works best for your farm. Moving kind of along here, I kind of got two more things. We're running a little long, getting close to that hour time here. Um, we've talked a lot. I want to talk specifically to you about um, E. coli because I think that's, that's kind of one thing that really comes up. Um, and it can be seen a lot specifically in um, wet areas and it can be growing. And we've seen some cultures as well with E. coli from our farm at some point. So kind of talking about E. coli and what it can cause there and some of the problems. Um, so I kinda, I'll kind of lump this up all into one subject and it's kind of neonatal diarrhea. And I'll kind of give you the different, we'll go through the different causes there. Um, so E. coli, there's two different strains of E. coli. Um, there's K99 and attaching and effacing coli, E. coli. So um, usually attaching and effacing has about a four to seven day time period um, when they're like the kids are four to seven days old, you'll notice that diarrhea, um, it might have a little bit of a blood tinge, um, but it's usually um, not as common in our kids so much as the K99 version. The K99 version is usually when they're about two to three weeks old um, where you'll see uh, diarrhea. It's usually um, white to dark in color. Um, and those kids would get pretty sick pretty quickly. Um, and it is, um, environmental related. So, um, especially if you have kids with diarrhea, just make sure you're keeping those pens dry and clean. So other kids don't, um, get the feces in their mouth because then they'll get E. coli diarrhea and then you'll end up treating that whole pen usually. Um, another cause of neonatal diarrhea, um, kind of to go along is salmonella, which is E. coli's sister. Um, that's usually when they're a little bit older, though. They're usually about three to four weeks. It's got a longer incubation period, hence why it's usually when they're closer to weaning. You'll see um, kind of those white um, pasty diarrheas, um, and you'll get really sick there. So those are your two. It smells bad. Oh, yeah. Salmonella is horrible. It's got a rank stench. You'll know if you have salmonella or not. It doesn't. It's not, it smells like death, basically. It's the best way to describe it, like the diarrhea itself. Gotcha. So what's kind of the treatment there besides time or? or... Uh, yeah, so for both E. coli and salmonella, supportive care is going to be your number one, whether it's IV fluids, oral fluids, um, probiotics. And then um, in those cases, both of them are going to need antibiotics for treatment to get rid of the bacteria, whether it's oral or um or given under the skin, it's kind of up to your veterinarian. And do you, when you have E. coli salmonella, do you have a preferred treatment method, or or do you recommend anything? Or um, so both for E. coli and salmonella, both of those can be prevented. Um, they kind of go along with their sister viruses, um, uh, rotavirus and coronavirus. Um, both of those have similar signs, and they're usually coming together. Usually you have the bacteria causes the virus or the virus causes the bacteria overload. Um, and both of the, all of those can be prevented. Um, usually with that, um, good, good vaccine protocols within your, within your females. Um, good making sure all those kids have enough colostrum. And then there are products in the market kind of like TriShield, 
um, that are calf products that work really well in our sheep and goat clients um, as well to help get rid of and give antibodies to help fight off any of those infections. Gotcha. Gotcha there. Well, you kind of, you know, talked a little bit about um, some of the, like the vaccinations as well here. And I kind of, kind of want to build on that talking about pneumonia because pneumonia does happen a lot. And, and there is some stuff that can be used off label for goats specifically mm-hmm. uh, as well there. Do you kind of want to uh, work us through some of those and kind of give us maybe your hot take? Cause I know you have a hot take cause you've, You've yelled at me before about this, but um, do you, do you kind of your hot take on the pneumonia vaccinations there and what they can can and can do. Yeah, so with pneumonias, a lot of it's husbandry and making sure your ventilation is good so there's not stagnant air within those pens um, where it's got ammonia levels really high that's causing irritation within the respiratory tract. Um, so kind of making sure everything's well ventilated and good airflow is really important and not having too many goats in a pen really can reduce your instance instances of um, respiratory disease. Dr. Taylor, can we touch on that for just a second? Because I think, I think, you know, most of us love our goats, especially our baby goats. And what we want to do is put them in a, a closed up, warm, toasty environment where they have no extra air and no drafts or anything like that. But sometimes that's the worst thing that you can do for them, right? Yeah, because, because then, you know, it's humid and it's ammonia and it's it's too tight for them. Yep. So you don't want it to be too drafty, but you want airflow to go through that building. You want fresh, clean air. And you want that fresh, clean air to be down at the level of the baby goats. Just because you can smell fresh, clean air up where you're standing does not mean they can't, that it's fresh, clean air down by those babies. It might be high ammonia levels. So you got to get down on their level and make sure that that air is just as clean as what you're breathing when you're standing up. Um, But yeah, when, when you keep that high humidity level within the barn and keep it locked up and closed up real tight, the... The from the pee from the goats, because you know how much baby goats pee, that bedding gets so wet that it's going to produce so much ammonia and it's going to cause a lot of irritation. Because if you think about it, those babies are down in that straw almost about half of their day. Um, so if they're breathing in all that ammonia and causing all that irritation to the the cells that line the respiratory tract, um, you're really leaving yourself up to problems with overgrowth of bacteria that naturally live within the respiratory tract or viruses that can get in and cause problems. So with that, um, kind of what if you want to, besides just making sure you have good airflow and your barn's nice and dry for um, pneumonia cases, um, there are instances of vaccines, like Cameron said, that work on the cattle side that you can use on our goats. So um, there's different products, whether it be nasal gin or um, kind of those other intranasal vaccines um, that can cause can lead to having some cross protection in our goat species. Um, just because it's labeled for cattle doesn't mean it's not going to work, but it doesn't mean it's going to work 100%. There's minor differences between um different um, viral components that are in the major intranasal vaccines for pneumonia. Um, Your nasal gen um, 3 PMH or nasal gen 1 PMH, which has the pasturella 
and the manheimia. Those are two of our bacterial causes um, in sheep and goats that are kind of the number one cause for pneumonia. So those ones are better vaccines to use in our goat species than just the straight nasal gen 3. Um, and if you're going to use those, usually it's given at time of birth and then boosted at that four to six week mark. And then anytime you're going to like a show that's going to be enclosed, um, kind of like we've experienced with the Indiana State Fair, that's one of them where the ventilation's not super great. Um, it doesn't hurt to booster those vaccines. Um, some people see like good efficacy with it where they have great protection. Other people still come home with pneumonia. So it, it just kind of depends on what, um, what causes the pneumonia in those animals and if it's going to be covered by that vaccine or if they get proper immunity from that vaccine. Well, I know that, that the years that I had, that, um, I started using it, I, I did notice fewer kids that got sick at shows, especially those early spring shows. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm a believer in it. Yeah. So it does, it does have its place. I mean, I, um, I honestly, think it works good in most cases. I don't use it a whole lot just because on our farm, we never really had so much of respiratory problems. And the shows we did go to were usually like one day shows. So they didn't have a whole lot of stress factor into it. Um, so for us, I mean, it, like I said, vaccines and antibiotics will have their place within everyone's herd. And just because one herd does it doesn't mean your herd has to do it. It's It's got a reason at those farms for a reason. You could talk about what the differences are between your herds and it might be something you can consider using in your herd, but not every, not every herd reads the book and not everyone's going to follow the same guidelines in treatment and prevention. Well, as we kind of, Laura, I, I think it's good to kind of wrap up here now. Sure. So before we do this, I kind of want to caveat all this conversation here and I want Catherine to reiterate that you are a licensed veterinarian. Yes, so I am licensed. Just because you hear things on this podcast does not mean it is uh, for you to use. I mean, you you can talk to your veterinarian like they're they're your go to person. They are the ones you're supposed to work with. Um, and just so you know, like a lot of the stuff, yeah, you can now get over the counter, but um, you really want to build that relationship so you can have the proper treatment, so you're not over treating and you're not under treating, because those are the two biggest problems that we see um, that I see, especially from clients is they tried everything under the sun, but they aren't using the right dosage because so-and-so said to use it. So that's how they used it type thing. So please consult with your veterinarians um, on how to treat and how to prevent and coming with good herd health protocols for your farm. Having a good vet is worth their weight in gold. Yeah, I, I agree on that there. Um, Thank you, Dr. Taylor, for joining us uh, this week. I know uh, we had to twist your arm um, a little bit in order because you don't like to talk very much unless it's to your customers. Um, but where could, if they were in the southern Wisconsin area, where could they find you at your place of service? Uh, yeah, so if you guys are in south-central Wisconsin, uh, Whitewater Veterinary Hospital is where I work. Um, so it's located in Whitewater, Wisconsin. Uh, we do about a 50 mile radius of service. So um, if you're in the area, feel free to give me a call if you want to consult or even use us for your herd work. We'd be more than happy to. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, honey, for joining us this week. 
I, I do appreciate it. Thank you, Dr. Taylor. And um, as always, if you would like to leave us some feedback, you can find us online um, on the Facebook. You can also leave us feedback um, on um, Apple Podcasts or any other platform that you listen to Goat Gab. And we're so glad that you joined us this week. As always, if you like us, tell a friend. If not, tell us you don't like us and tell us what we need to improve upon. And have a great week, everybody.